0: Hello, Andrew. Hello, Emmanuel. How are you? I'm doing good. It's nice seeing you. Welcome to the Rails Change Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, um, I know you have a book out and the title is is when like when you see the title, you know it's a book that every Rails developer would like to buy. And um it's a um, high performance postgres uh postgres SQL for Rails this is sort of like you're directly targeting a specific set of um, programmers so uh, Ruby Ruby on Rails programmers of course and those who use postgres the the book is right now in the beta version when are you guys planning to release the the complete version of the book
1: so the current process is or the way pragmatic programmers does it is they do this beta launch and then every two weeks they and they i think in my case anyways most of the chapters were written already although they were omitted from the beta release uh and they kind of want you to shoot for like 65% complete of the book and then it would go into beta and then every two weeks they add in two more chapters so that's what's been happening now there's been three of those um, so initially it, there's about 15 chapters in the book and initially it was 10 were the first beta release and now it's 12 and 14 and so on. And, um, like I said, most were written, but that being said, I, you know, once the book is actually public and I, I felt like, uh, much more, um, desire to just really go back through things. And so I've been doing more and more revisions and not changing the content, but. Trying to clarify the, uh, you know, educational aspects and the examples and the exercises and try to make them really realistic. And there's an example, there's a Rails application called Rideshare that's used throughout the book for most of the examples and exercises. And there's spots where sometimes the example deviates a little bit from the code and it, you know, it's kind of an opportunity to say like, oh, let's make this a little more realistic and bake it into the application. And so those are the kinds of things I've been doing and the schedule is, uh, to, the goal is to actually have the book completely wrapped up by the end of October, which is only about a month out. Um, so in that time period we're besides the beta feedback, we also, um, have the book going out to some more technical reviewers and then they'll provide feedback. And then I think there'll be a, some additional internal stuff at pragmatic programmers, like uh, copy editing and that kind of thing.
0: Hey, Emmanuel Hayford here, and I want to tell you about AppSignal. AppSignal is a no-brainer monitoring for smart developers that allows you to track errors and performance in your apps. With AppSignal, you get beautiful dashboards that provide deep insights to quickly get to the root cause of problems. It's easy to set up, and with real human support, you'll be ready to track and crash backs within minutes after installation. Check AppSignal out at AppSignal.com. That's dot com. Right, right, cool. And um, I think the book came out in a very good time, considering the fact that you're covering a lot of the features that Rails 7.1 brings to Rails developers. And this this part makes me really excited, because uh, throughout the course of this um, conversation, we are going to cover some of the uh, just just a few of the features that are coming up in Rails. So some of the features that we are going to cover. Uh, the first on the list is about um, strict loading, and I always wondered like I never commit the the, the meanings of, of all of these things to memory because always I know there is some documentation around for me to look at. What's the difference between strict loading and eager loading?
1: Yeah, I think, um, this, I think it's probably, there are a lot of terms that are really similar and even myself, I'll need to pull up. I usually pull up the docs and, um, and I think if you work with these things all the time, it, you know, you probably get really comfortable with their differences, but if you don't look at them all the time, it's, it's a lot of similar words, <laughs> lazy loading, eager loading, strict loading.
0: Right. Exactly. And,
1: um, so I think it's easiest to start with lazy loading. So active record has always allowed you to write code, you know, your query code such that you can reference models and you can do filters and sorts on those models that are associated. And if you don't load that data, you know, if there's a database query involved behind the scenes to, to load that data to then filter it or sort it or that kind of thing. Um, what. What active record will do is lazily load that you know so at the time the code executes it'll do another database query and um, that can result in that's a nice it's a convenient feature it can be easy to kind of write you know um, ruby active record code that uh, and and care a little less about the specific sql queries that are generated but the flip side of that is if you're not paying a lot of attention to the sql queries that are generated they could be Suboptimal, you know, it could be excessive queries uh, and that's the, the most ex- famous example is the n plus one query pattern where you might be repeatedly querying a table in a loop and um, but there's other kinds of non optimal queries like um, where a more optimal version might be loading that data up front and uh, doing um, uh, joins or doing a sub query. Uh, and so those, those kinds of things are wrapped up into the, what rails, what active record calls eager loading. And that means to me, it's more like just loading all the data you need upfront. And, uh, depending on how the code, you know, is used later on, like if you build a, a active record relation and then you render JSON or render a view or whatever later, you know, that's where you might do that filtering and sorting with with that data you've already loaded. Um, and that's where you can at that sort of upstream point or that, you know, the outside of that caller call site, that's where you can do that preloading. And that's where you have these options with active record. You have, um, three different methods. Um, I always, I I know that there's includes and preload, and then there's one more that I never use, but, (laughs) uh, That's where you would typically say, you know, and this usually in practice, like you've, you've probably seen this as well. Like you'll see, you'll see these kind of query patterns in your server log where it'll say, you know, query table query table over and over with just the ID varying, and it looks like an M plus one. And then you'll go and you'll put like includes on somewhere else, whatever. So that's on that, you know, where that code is called, like at the point where it's the initial query happens, you'll add includes. So that would be eager loading. So with strict loading now, um, what you can do is you can essentially disable that default behavior that allows you to do that lazy loading and strict loading was added in 6.1 and they let you do, it allows, you know, currently it's written such that you can do it per call site. So you can say, you know, in this particular controller, I don't want to allow lazy loading, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually. Let's say your model is called post, you know, you can say post dot strict loading, and then you can do your regular active record stuff. And if you try to do then later a lazy load with that same, like, let's say you assign that initial query to a variable. And then later on, you try to chain some more methods on and try to do a lazy load or a lazy load happens. Um, with strict loading, the uh, there'll, there'll be an exception raised. So it won't actually allow you to do that. And the idea is, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear how people do use this in practice, but I'm imagining it's kind of performance-sensitive areas, areas where you want to really, you know, you want to kind of lock down the queries a little bit
0: more. Um, that kind of thing. Essentially, what, what the purpose of this feature actually in Rails is that it's uh, sort of like prevents you from doing N plus one queries ahead of time in times when you're not even sure that you might be doing N plus one queries, right? Yeah, this sounds like something that would be very useful, except that I hope people are not going yeah, to. Yeah, I, I, um,
1: <laughs> I agree. I'm not, I I think that I kind of talked about it in the book, like as a alternative to, you know, we've had a lot of different tooling in, in Ruby on Rails to detect N plus ones. And there's a gem that is covered that, uh, the prosopite gem that covers, uh, that does N plus one detection. But my thought is if you, you know, so the, the, main rails app I work on at work, we're just, we're just on 6.1 and we haven't really started to roll out strict loading. Um, so we do, but what we do face is, and it's also a really, it's a fairly old app. It's about eight years old and we do have N plus one queries and, you know, new code that goes in that might have N plus ones and stuff. So we, we tend to focus more on, trying to detect those and then, you know, make sure the queries are pretty reasonable. But I'd say for newer code, and, and it is an opportunity for us to introduce it as well, but for newer applications, um, it'd be interesting to take that approach of, of, you know, if you feel like the, uh, you know, to, to use it more by default, I guess. And then in theory, yeah, it would make n plus ones not possible because you'd be required to eager load the data.
0: Another feature that's, that's uh, that you cover in your book is um, how to use virtual uh, generated columns, and um, I I'm 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 a bit confused on this because I checked um, the other day I checked the documentation around um, generated columns, and from from what the documentation in Postgres said that the Post, that, that Postgres itself does not implement start-generated columns. So the, the, the PR that implements uh, generated columns in Rails actually uses virtual columns um, on the attributes. And then it passes an option, and the name of the option is um, stored. That makes me think, like, the, the attribute is stored actually on the database, but Postgres does not implement start generated columns so what's what's the difference between uh the the virtual generated columns and then the uh start generated columns from for now I understand that we only have virtual generated columns because um Postgres does not implement start generated columns what's the difference between the two
1: so this is an active record migrations feature for you know column generation that we're talking about and um The, um, uh, postgres supports this keyword generated that allows us to, um, basically make a column that doesn't, you don't write to directly or store data in, but it's uh, derived from another column. And so it's a generated column. And I noticed when I first saw this, I saw it more from the postgres side. So then when I saw that active record used the word virtual, um. I noticed the naming discrepancy there, virtual versus generated. And, um, I wasn't really sure what the history was around that. So what I did, and and we were discussing this in advance, uh, I looked at the MySQL documentation and I saw that they use the virtual, um, uh, naming. And it does look like there are multiple options within that on that side, as you said, and when I looked into the Postgres adapter, it looks like the, Um, adapter on the Postgres side, I'm not sure if you saw this, but it requires that you pass stored when you Mm -hmm. set up that column in your active Mm -hmm. record migration, but it doesn't actually do anything with it. (laughs) And if you don't pass it, then it just raises an exception. So it does require that you pass it, but it's, it's, uh, the, the actual SQL statement that's generated is, um, generated always as, and then whatever transformation you're doing on a column and then the stored keyword. So I I don't, I feel like I'm not answering your question, but I actually don't know if there's, are you saying within Postgres, there's an alternative to the stored keyword? Uh,
0: within, Within Postgres, Postgres itself doesn't implement stored generated columns. So what Rails is doing is it's calling the column virtual and it's naming the option um, start. And this is what confuses me because Postgres doesn't implement a virtual column that start. It only implements a, um, a, a well, a virtual generated column. So this thing confuses me um, a bit. Maybe this is one of the PRs that I have to dive into and dig um, into to, to get more information around this one.
1: Okay. I, I um, Thanks for letting me know that. I actually just pulled up the Postgres documentation and just skim the first paragraph and i i get the vibe of what it's trying to say it's saying that the virtual column is only it's not stored it's just read. so it's like a it's kind of like to me it'd be a way to write the expression that you might write and you'd store so like the example in the book is um a little bit contrived but it's it's just um lower casing using the lower database function to lowercase an email for example and then it, it's comparing that approach to a bunch of different approaches for how you might do that. And um it is, as you said, it is using the stored option. As you said, it is, or as we discussed, it's required. And that is what the DDL or the create the the column creation SQL is, is it uses that stored keyword in Postgres. As you said, it doesn't seem like there's the virtual support. So what that ends up being is like essentially a column that, you know, you as when you write the active record migration, you say, here's how I want to transform this. And, and then that's kind of the end of when you think about it and it just becomes a regular persisted column you can work with. So you would also ask like, can you index that in Postgres? Yeah, you can index it. It's just like a regular column. It's, it's just a way to um, it's, there's actually something really similar, which is an index uh, called an or an expression index or an index on an expression, which um, you could also do, at least in that simple example I just gave of, of transforming an email, you could just keep your email address in the column and then you could build an index off that column that does that transformation and the index itself stores the transform value. So yeah, it's, it's, those are a couple of the, so what, what we noticed was um, in it's uh the, the I forgot which is that it's either 7.0 or 7.1, this kind of support for these, Virtual columns. Yeah,
0: I I don't quite. I think yeah, I think it was earlier, but I don't remember which version of Rails exactly. Okay. Yeah. So my confusion was around the idea that if the thing is stored, then why are we calling it virtual?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's not really virtual. Virtual would be like just only queried or you know a queryable, but not persisted, like you said. So yeah, maybe that's that's interesting. Like maybe um. I kind of want to dig into why if MySQL has that, maybe that maybe Postgres has, you know, Postgres is a very standards-based uh, database. It there's, there's the SQL SQL standard and there's revisions of the SQL standard and Postgres goes through and point by point says, here are the things that we implement and um, maybe it's something that is Like one possibility, I don't know, I'll have to look into it. Is if it could be a MySQL uh, only feature, for example, that's not standards based. And so maybe Postgres hasn't implemented it.
0: Yeah, and that that brings me to the idea of um, common table expressions, which I think is a um, which I think is a feature that you also cover in your book, by the way, just to make things clear, I think like most of the features that we're talking about or most of the features that are coming up in Rails 7.1 um, are features that you provide examples for and guide readers to work through these examples so they can be able to sort of like um, have this knowledge cemented in their heads. So every feature from what I looked, because I, I skimmed through your book and every feature... Has practical examples that users can um, work through with the right application. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. That's um, there's probably a couple spots where the examples are a little thin, or maybe I'm using um, examples that are from elsewhere. But generally, that was the case. I'd say you know, seventy five percent of the content or more, hopefully. Um, it, it's the idea, really, to me is is to try to make these features much more interesting by engaging directly with them you know and and then you need a way to practice so i I realized pretty early on in writing the book that i needed an application i needed a database structure um i needed something realistic to work with even though it's a you know fictional kind of app um it's a you know it's a it's a real app and so all of the examples have usually have the source code will ship with part of the will uh, be included the code snippets with the book but they're usually just copied and pasted from what's on uh github which anyone can go and see and um the yeah that was important to me was to make it hands-on and and that's something that was a good fit for me with pragmatic programmers style of books as well as they they're aimed at professional programmers and kind of hands-on programming versus um something that's a little more academic which is great too but the purpose of this book is to hopefully to help people build the skills you know and kind of get some practice in
0: sounds good and um yeah so i was talking initially about earlier on about common table expressions and um this is a feature that's quite new to ruby and from what i know common table expressions are a result set that's stored in memory that you can use later on in in your book. How do, I'm going to refer to them as CTEs because it's easier to to say that way. (laughs) How do CTEs differ from temporary tables or subqueries in terms of performance and readability?
1: Oh yeah, it's actually a really good question that is pretty deep uh, because there are, um, it's it's sending me off on, the performance side in particular, there are a lot of there's technical differences with common table expressions and subqueries, um, from the postgres query optimizer perspective, but it's probably beyond the scope of what we're trying to talk about. And also it's frankly, it's beyond it's it's kind of at the edge of my knowledge. And, um, one of the books I recommend in the, there, there's also a section where I'm going to recommend some more books for folks that want to go deeper. If you know, like personally, I'm really into, uh, deepening my knowledge with Postgres, including query execution planning and that kind of thing. And it's a, it's a vast and it's a deep and wide kind of area to study and learn about, but, um, let me just simplify a little bit. So, um, Hmm. yeah, sub queries would be sub let's start with sub queries then. So sub queries uh, would be, you know, a simple example would be like, um, you've got a, an outer query that maybe you want to filter the rows down. Um, and you want to perform a, another query within that query to go and fetch some content that would allow you to then filter your outer query. So, um, this is again, kind of a contrived example, but the, the idea is that that's one statement then that goes to Postgres. So if the client application generates that, that single statement with a sub query, uh, that query will be sent and then Postgres will figure out the optimal plan to, to perform that. It might actually rewrite the query internally. It does a lot of that. And, and, um, as a, if you do a lot of sub queries, what can happen is, um, that can create a lot of, um, it can create a very complex query that's hard to maintain. And this probably would be more common in if you're writing SQL queries directly, not necessarily active record. Um, however, you know, you can certainly write subqueries in active record as well. And so if you get these, a lot of, if you do have subqueries that get complex or verbose, one of the benefits of common table expressions then is, is just kind of a, from an organization perspective you can actually then just break out that subquery into its own query and give it a name and um it could be a query that pretty much stands on its own but if it's also a like imagine it's not just a simple filter but it's maybe it does a couple of joins and it has join conditions and it has where clause and it has ordering and it has fields that it selects it could be fairly complex and you could encapsulate all of that in a common table expression style query by having your initial big query kind of named and then another simpler query that maybe uses that uh, and it will use it by its name and it's all kind of encapsulated in that name and that's been available for you know so common table expressions do serve a purpose of um, organizing and encapsulating queries and you can even of course build up uh, a CTE that has, and there's, you know, examples of this, but it has several queries involved with it. So this might be more of like an analytical style query, maybe not so much as a, a kind of a fast, quick web application style query, but you know, you might be like writing a reporting style query where you want to say, get me all of the sales from this time period. Get me all of the sales of this product type from this region. Um, join to the salespeople and uh, maybe you're producing a a report of the top performing salespeople by product category by region or something like that so you can do that in SQL you know and you can do that you can organize those chunks in common as um, clauses that are uh, can all be chained together and now what we can do in active record is um, we can do that in active record as well with, you know, all of the active record relations and scopes and different things that we get, uh, using the new with method. Right. So, uh, yep. And in, in CTEs, they, they also use the with keyword. So they're called CTEs, but you'll see them if, for, if folks aren't familiar with this, anytime they see a, a big gnarly SQL query and they see the with keyword. Uh, that's where a CTE is being used.
0: Right. And that makes me think, like, talking about CTEs means that anything around inside the code base um, has some something to do with, with really very complex uh, queries. So let's say that we have complex queries around us all over in the co- code base using multiple CTEs. What, in your opinion, do you think are some of the best practices that we can employ to optimize these, these queries in terms of performance.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, CTEs are kind of a, I'm going to slightly. So regarding query performance optimization, CTEs, they do have Postgres documentation should describe any limitations that the optimizer would have with, comment table expressions specifically, but I'd say like at a higher level, I guess the idea would be, um, if you do have a lot of, if you have a system where you do a lot of repeated queries to build up a set of data that let's, let's say you have a background job that's processing some data. Um, and you kind of repeatedly, um, Query the data, do some processing, maybe write some data, query again, do some processing, write some data. If it's possible to, if you notice that sort of pattern, this really isn't about specific query optimization, but more like system optimization, I guess. If you notice that kind of pattern, it might be possible to fetch more data at once and then improve your overall throughput of your system. You know, if it's a, if it's a background processing system that like maybe it's a payroll calculation or something like that. Um, I, I worked in a past job at a company that did order dispatching and the, another engineer there wrote a system using a lot of common table expressions that did a lot of, it was, it was kind of an infinite loop that was repeatedly querying the database to find out, um, new orders that were placed that needed to be dispatched and, uh, for a delivery system. And that was a situation where there was a lot of complex conditions about finding available drivers for uh, dispatching of new orders and finding new orders. And these data pieces were coming from different tables. So that was a case where the system was previously doing more um, individual queries. And then a lot of them were replaced with a system that did more CTE style queries, which was, resulted in fewer overall queries and more system throughput because it was performance sensitive. It was running in a loop yeah. and that sort of thing. So there, there's all kinds of things we could talk about with query level optimization, but I would say the use case for CTEs might be more, uh, a, as a possible replacement for a lot of smaller individual queries in a performance sensitive area where you want to combine those into. Uh, less round trips to the database, but you also want to stay organized.
0: Your book covers a lot of ground. I went through, like I said earlier, I went through the content and the chapters. I was like, holy crap. There is lots of information uh, inside this book. You have uh, SQL merge, uh, exclusion constraints. You have um, information around partitioning and foreign data wrappers. I even don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, what, what's, what's this? So I, I need to sit down and then dedicate, I don't know, like two weeks to read in detail exactly what, what I'm, I'm going to learn about. And it, it all sounds and look like these are things that if I really have a large application that deals with a huge set of data that I would be able to... Um, learn a lot from not just me. Every single Ruby on Rails developer. Immediately, I saw the title. I was like, "This is a book every Ruby on Rails developer should get." Now, there's another feature that's um, this. This actually, this feature has been around for quite a bit, and I think Eileen has done a lot of work around um, database um, sharding. What's the primary motivation for implementing? um horizontal database uh, sharding in a large scale application. Thanks for
1: saying those nice things by the way and yeah that is um just really briefly that as i have kind of dove deeper into postgres the last couple of years it's it's like such a um an impressive massive open source project 25 years of development and they do a you know annual release cadence and just really broad and deep and it's you know it has its whole own open source ecosystem like ruby on rails does international conferences, books. So I, part of my goal with this book was to kind of bring some of that to rails developers that might not, you know, they might, they're they're, you know, it's common that rails developers aren't that excited about the database, but um, I'd like to, <laughs> you should I'd like to challenge people to active
0: record for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's it, uh and I've, I've worked in other languages and with other object relational mappers as well. And I've, come back to Ruby on Rails and um and Ruby and Active Record because I enjoy working with them. And um there's uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities to get excited about database functionality that is very practical that you can put into use, even if you don't have a really high-scale application. But functionality that, um, and you know, there's lots of examples of this in the book, but you know, different aspects of your application could exist as database functionality and you can still manage it like source code. And there's examples of that too, with views and functions and procedures and things like that. Um, and it's not, it's not really scary or different. It's or I mean, it's not really scary. It's just different. It's just a different way to manage the ecosystem of your application or your platform. So going back to sharding then, um so sharding is not natively supported in Postgres. Postgres is a single instance or a single primary database. and um, what we can do then though, from the client application perspective is we can do sharding from the application perspective by as long as the client app, in this case Ruby on Rails active record, as long as it knows and it, how to work with multiple databases. Um, Then you can do a form of what horizontal sharding is, is it's a form of sharding. And what it means is that you use the exact same database design or the same schema, so the same tables and columns and that kind of thing. But typically what you would do, the main use case would be, I've got this, let's say you have a software as a service platform and you have, you know, several hundred customers. You might have um, the need to isolate their data they may want that for contractual reasons and what you might want to do is run them on their own database and um, so they would have essentially a copy of the database you know same tables but their the row data would only be their row data and the rails application could then work with those two databases uh and it would be responsible for the routing so you might have that customer might have their own subdomain or some other way to route their traffic, but it would, the rails application would be responsible for writing and reading to that customer database. So that that's kind of the data isolation use case. And then the performance use case would be, um, running that other database. Once you've split that out, which there's a lot of work in doing that if it's an existing database, but, um, it's a lot easier if you're starting from scratch that way. But if you have that isolated database, uh, then running that database on a separate server instance, that's where you get the scalability benefit because you can scale that instance independently. So let's say you have your Postgres primary instance for, you know, you're running on a cloud Postgres provider, you would provision an entirely new database server instance. And then you would put that database on that. And that one might have more memory, might have different parameters like it. You could you can the idea is it's independent, and the rails application is still again responsible for writing and reading to it and so that's some folks call that application level sharding in active record, the horizontal sharding functionality uh, can be used for both of those use cases and um again, the idea is the schema is exactly the same for both of them, and the application is responsible for the routing so the book examples do talk about how you might do that routing and there are some other uh good blog posts online there's one from freshworks that i believe is referenced in there there's some posts from uh notion and figma uh, other big companies that do application level sharding
0: one thing I wanted to ask about the the release of the book is currently we, we only have access to the elect- electronic version of the book. It's uh, the just an ebook version. Are there plans to sort of like make these books uh, physical, especially after especially after uh, you publish it when it, when when it comes out like done uh, at the end of October? Do you have any plans to make this book physical?
1: I do. Yeah. I I hope that's the case because I tend to prefer books that way. And, uh, the, um, although, yeah, I, I have purchased a bunch of tech books over the years and, and like to have the physical books, uh, you know, if nothing else, they help raise my monitor up to the right height. Right. And, uh, uh, (laughs) um, but yeah, the, what I did learn from pragmatic programmers is they don't do any publishing themselves anymore, I think for cost reasons, but it looks like they have partners. So. I've seen other books that they offer where it looks like you can purchase the book through a, a third party that will print it. And I think there's printing on demand services, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on that.
0: Right. The reason I ask about physical books is because like I, I work more or less like six, seven, eight hours per day. And if the book is a physical book, I can just like step away from my computer, my screen and then sit somewhere relaxed and then open flip pages probably like make, make notes, highlight some stuff that I find interesting. So if, if you'll be able to get physical books, I think lots of readers will thank you, um, for that. Yeah. So there's also one feature in rails that you cover and it's about query logs. To be honest, I've never used query logs anywhere in any of the applications that I've worked on. um, what are qu- query logs, by the way?
1: Let's talk about what they are. So there used to be this gem marginalia Well, not used to be, it still exists and it's, um, we use it where I work and that's the origin of the functionality of marginalia basically became native functionality in active record as query logs. So the functionality is, uh, every time the rails application sent, you know, active record generates a SQL query and sends it to the database. And, um, there's that's, you know, SQL SQL query text that gets sent over a, a, TCP connection or whatever. Um, and, um, what active record does, since it generates the query, we can also then we can, uh, annotate the query with where the query is generated. So let's say it's in a controller action. We can put the rails application name, controller name, uh, action name. And those are segments that could then be combined as just a a comment. And that can be sent along with the query. And then, you know, why might you want to do that? Well, if you're looking at, you know, most Rails developers, they might not be looking just at the SQL queries, but certainly database administrators are. And if you tend to get, um, if you tend to be doing the kind of optimization where you wanna optimize your SQL queries holistically across your whole database. Postgres, and I'm sure the other relational databases, they have, but for speaking for Postgres, it has this this really common and great um extension called um PG stat statements. And what that does is um it's part of the kind of Postgres observability tools where it will uh it'll normalize, it'll take your queries in and it will um remove their specific parameters, and then it creates these groups of queries that all kind of have the same shape. And then it calculates statistics about them. So it'll, you can use that to say, here are my top worst queries across my entire database from anywhere. And, um, you know, assuming it's not background jobs or, you know, or like, uh, processes running within Postgres, um, you know, which it it normally wouldn't be, those are fast. Um, so it's going to be your application queries. What you can do is you can then use all of those statistics to sort all that information and you can drill into using, um, average and mean execution time. You can even look at standard deviations if you're into the statistics side, but what you can do is you can identify your top couple of worst queries. And then, um, the great thing is you have that annotation there from your rails app that shows you where that, uh, query was generated. So you can go back to your rails app. Then once you found this is my worst query, this query takes so long, you know, 10 seconds or whatever, um, you can then say, oh, it's from this controller action, or you can also annotate your background jobs. You can say, oh, it's in this background job. And, um, then you can go and determine, oh, can we improve this query in the application source code? Can we filter down to fewer columns earlier? Can we add a limit? Do we, are we missing an index? Do we need to just rewrite this query to be uh, simpler, lots of choices that you can then make to optimize it. But essentially, yeah. And you know, that was probably a lot too long of an explanation, but query logs are basically a way to add, to kind of enrich your SQL queries with more information about the application.
0: Right. And, um, when you were, when you were talking about these query logs stuff, I, I, I sort of like thought, wait. A lot of these sound familiar. So the the follow-up question to this is, what problems do query logs solve that um, APMs haven't fixed already? Because I know some APMs do exactly some of the stuff that you described. So why would I want to use query logs then?
1: Yeah. Um. You you probably shouldn't start with query logs. You probably if you do have an APM, you should probably start there because that's going to be like your performance from the perspective of the client application, because you know it's going to be doing, uh, tracing. You know, or it's going to be having like a um, what do they call it? Like, there's going to be a small program running on the, on the host that's going to give you that kind of observability information about the execution of. Let's say an overall API endpoint. And um, you you want to maybe take a more holistic view initially. Like if you have, if you identify some of your worst performing. So yeah, let's talk about the application side. So if you're looking at the application side, you might also want to identify some of your worst performing endpoints if you're doing performance optimization work. Um, maybe you're getting a lot of customer complaints about this such and such area is slow or Maybe they're you know it's um it's unreliable and and actually it's a performance problem that's causing it to be unreliable. There's occasional problems where it's just extremely slow and it seems like it's not working, something like that, so you might start with the A p m and look over a set of a, like a good time period you know to get some good amount of information and um and then you want to look at the different segments in there and determine if it's really a database query problem or it's something else. Um, and you know, it could be, uh, of course it could be something else unrelated to the database. Like, um, uh, maybe you're sending so much data to the browser that the browser is, you know, struggling. Um, but let's say you've identified it's a server problem. And then let's say you've identified that the biggest portion is a query problem. At that point, then you might want to be thinking about looking into your, the database side of things so what you can do is you can log slow queries and you can see individual samples in your logs you can use this this pg stat statements thing i mentioned um the book also talks about this really nice uh open source rails friendly postgres performance dashboard tool called pg hero and if people haven't seen that it's it's worth taking a look at it uses the PG stat statements data and it kind of gives you like a little mini APM sort of thing just for the Postgres queries. And it presents that data in a much, you know, in a nice friendly web application way as opposed to being logged into the database directly and stuff. Um, But yeah, at the point where you've determined, okay, this problem is a query problem and um, we regularly see really bad performance here. Maybe there's just, you know, that's where then you'd want to go and analyze it in a number of different ways. Um, but to be fair, you would know where it's coming from then because you would have started from the APM. So the, the query logs though, if you work on a team where you do have a database administrator, or if you have some infrastructure engineers that they typically, in my experience, they're not going to necessarily be, they, they could of course use the APM, but they might not, they might be looking at things more from the kind of the um, inside out, you know, they might be looking at things more from Postgres, like what's our load on the system? Like, okay, let me dive into some of the queries, but not necessarily from the application side inward. So yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's good to know about and it, it could be useful, but it's probably going to be aimed more at folks with a database, uh, query optimization aspect to their job
0: yeah and that makes me think about this um problem some apm applications do not work with every um host for instance for uh, i know for a fact that DigitalOcean has like your application virtualized so some um apms want direct access to everything to be able to track the performance of these sql queries and other stuff so what i'm starting to think right now is that if you have a host that doesn't support some SaaS apm applications you you could probably throw in some query logs um, this marginalia feature to sort of like give you some insights on the performance of your queries i think I've, I've not delved into this yet but i think this is one of the use cases for when like your application is hosted where some apms cannot work so i think all in all it's a it's a good feature to have in rails
1: yeah it's um we we have found that too we have um apm tools like from what i've seen there's a lot of folks have noticed how expensive they are and um, a lot of them charge per host and and then you can pay different amounts for how much, how like your sampling rate. And so, you know, I believe that most of them work this way where they're, you're not going to get a hundred percent fidelity of the information from your application where with the Postgres server log and the query stat statements, which is built into Postgres. So every query, there's a a tiny bit of latency that's added as a result of this, but every query is going to be, uh, captured. The statistics are captured about it apart from there's one exception, which is, um, uh, queries that error out. And then in that case, you would need that client level visibility into them. Um, but for queries that run successfully, you're going to have hundred percent of them captured this way. So if you truly, if you have a, a truly challenging database kind of problem, then, um, having that, uh, query level analysis and then being able to know where it came from in the app, it helps, uh, to, um, uh, identify where it's happening on, you know, starting from the database side and then gives you the ability to go back to the application. So yeah, hopefully it's, and I I think that it, It, um, and, and so just a quick clarification on the marginalia. So marginalia is a Ruby gem that anyone can use in even older versions of rails. However, if you're in rails, uh, seven, then, uh, query logs, uh, has, I believe all of the functionality of it. So I would recommend you just go that route It's native to the framework. Um, but in either case you have an option. So I just wanted to clarify that.
0: Right rails gives uh, a lot of options to developers most people some people are not particularly happy about this, but yeah, sometimes too many <laughs> options yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh yeah, I wanted to ask um i are you coming to um rails rails world in Amsterdam
1: unfortunately no yeah i wish i I wish I could be there i'm gonna be trying to um uh tweet i i'm actually uh also i am gonna to be at a conference next week though, so it is as you said it's next week uh, we're based on when we're recording this and, um, th- I'm gonna actually be at a postgres conference. And so there's, um, postgres has a couple of big conferences and, and actually also in different places around the world. And then they also have a lot of small ones. And I, I did listen to the episode, uh, your recent episode with David and, um, in that episode, he mentioned rails world in the future. I don't think anyone's i haven't seen any commitment to this but just the idea the suggestion that maybe rails world would also have these um small or like more frequent but smaller scale events in more cities around the world internationally and actually postgres could be looked at as a model for that because they do they do um a couple of big they do several big conferences in different regions and then they also do something called pg day um which is just a single day, not a single track, but a single day conference in a bunch of cities all around the world as well. So I've been to, I've had the, the privilege of going to both a bigger one and a PG day. Um, this past spring I did a PG day, uh, in Chicago. And then next week I'm actually traveling to New York city to go to, uh, PG Conf NYC so excited about that. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be trying to like, I'm going to be at the conference. Trying to learn as much as I can about Postgres. Trying to follow and having FOMO for Rails World on Twitter and you know uh, other social media. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I was looking forward to meeting you at Rails World, but it doesn't mean anything. That there, there are going to be more conferences uh, around the world probably where we could we could uh, meet in, meet in person. So, um, Andrew atkinson i know now you're not related to ron atkinson <laughs> that's okay <laughs> yeah it was it was nice having you on the show i almost forgot the the code the discount code for listeners would be changelog25 for for your book on pra- pragmatic what's Prag Prag. so p-r-a-g-p-r-o-g.com Right. So the discount code which is changelog twenty-five all together as one word, uh, for a twenty five percent discount on high performance Postgres SQL for Rails. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for joining the show.
1: Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.